here we are episode 17 it's been it's been it's been a while it's been a little while we've been on a bit of a hiatus here at the uh, making noise podcast uh, i traveled to new jersey to visit family haven't seen in like a year and a half almost um went to nebraska for three weeks to the kimmel harding nelson center for the arts where i was an artist in residence a amazing place composers performers it, 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 maybe maybe not performers but definitely anyone who's creating music amazing residency it's a, a fantastic place holly mcadams who's the director she's a wonderful person um, i would highly recommend applying um but yeah so this episode here this was uh i had this conversation with andy hudson clarinetist and professor at the university of north carolina in greensboro um amazing person i had never met him until this conversation our mutual friend aaron cameron uh connected us and it was just the most pleasant conversation uh he's a lot like me where he he thinks out loud you know the idea comes and then you start talking and then you try to figure it out as you're saying it um but i think his his thoughts and process for these things it's always it's always about moving forward it's, it's it's a positive bend to it and there's there's a sense of progress that he's trying to whatever he's trying to figure out it's going towards something that is positive and i love that and, and i think you'll get a lot from that too so um uh, some things to announce with uh within the episode here and some links to check out is andy's uh, ensemble he's in latitude 49 they recorded an album called the bagatelles project which you can purchase on Bandcamp, and they commissioned 36 composers um, short pieces, like maybe I think two minutes or so less, and all the proceeds go to the Coalition for African Americans in the Performing Arts, um, and that will always be. So if you purchase the album like five years, the money will still go to them. Um, and you can check you can check out that organization at uh, four, which is the number four, four c a a p a dot org. Uh, also check out Andy's website, theandyhudson.com. T-H-E-A-N-D-Y-H-U-D-S-O-N.com. And uh, his social media uh, handles is the same, the Andy Hudson at the Andy Hudson. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And then a couple announcements. At the end of May, I'm having a premiere. My sax duo that I wrote for the Bio Duo uh, is being premiered. More, more to come on that. Um, the information, the details is not solidified just yet but it's 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 happening it is happening um and yeah i think that's all i think that's all so thank you all for watching as always i appreciate uh the time that you you take out of your day to to listen and to these conversations or watch or watch it if you watch it on youtube so please like subscribe follow on any any stream any uh podcast service you you use and as always, if there's any service you want me to add the podcast to, I'm more than happy to do it. So, alright, let's make some noise. My name is Adam Kanal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise Podcast. One of the years I was in Chicago, I remember seeing a headline that we broke the record for the most consecutive days of um, complete cloud cover without break. Like 30 something days of just like no actual break in the overcast. <laughs> really? Great. 
Yeah, it was awesome. It was great to be there during that monumentous moment for Chicago weather. That's pretty interesting. What was that like? I mean, I, I feel like, uh, what, what is it, Alaska or somewhere? There's somewhere where there's like 30 days or 40 days of no sunlight or something? Yeah, I mean, it was it was crazy because, I mean, I, you know, the city's so beautiful and it's like one of my favorite places in the whole world. I loved living there, but it was, it was sort of like weird when the sun like... Yeah, I guess they'd never gone that long in Chicago without that much cover. And so when the sun finally started peeking through, it was like strange, you know, like waking up from some kind of dream or something like <laughs> this bizarre experience of like being born, like, oh, wow, everything's new. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I don't, I don't think I've ever experienced that before. I mean, definitely days of, uh, um, I don't even know, actually. No, I've never experienced something like that. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's uh, it's worth it to it's worth it to live in that amazing place. And uh, you know, I, I convinced myself I didn't hate the weather so much. You know, I I feel like Chicagoans kind of pride themselves on how tough they are. You know, it's like, um, yeah, it's sort of like a badge of honor. Like uh, I'm a Chicagoan, and so I never complain about the cold, no matter what. And I never. Yeah, I, n- I never show like any weakness in the face of snow and ice and below zero temperatures. But I, I really, I'd convinced myself I didn't mind. And then my first North Carolina winter, it just, you know, mild and like two snows and that's it. Early spring and like a long spring. I, I've enjoyed the, I've, def- I've definitely softer than I thought I was. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, because now you're, you're closer to the ocean you know yes so i wonder how much that you know how much of a difference that makes for you yeah i mean greensboro is great it's um we're like kind of the center of the state and then on the north side so like i can be on the beach you know in three-ish hours like on the atlantic ocean and then i can be like on top of mount mitchell the highest point east of the mississippi river in three hours so it's it's an incredible like spectrum of of um the topography and like climate I, I really i mean i grew up in atlanta georgia and so i you know I, I knew the south and i knew some of the beauty in the south and some of the challenges in the south but um north carolina kind of has it all you know my wife and i went away last weekend and we drove an hour and a half to virginia and we were like in a cabin in the mountains like on a mountaintop you know it was incredible just yeah, it was it's so why I'm still getting used to that because like in the Midwest you drive an hour and a half and you're like, have I left Illinois yet? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes in Chicago you drive an hour and a half and you've only gone like 20 miles. Oh my god, that's so true though. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I love I love that. I mean, uh, was that was that a planned trip or was it totally impromptu? It was um, it was a necessary trip. We have two young kids who are awesome, and we love them, and. Um, you know, of course, in the last year, until November, my kids were doing all their schooling at home, mm. which was um, like challenging for us. I think we, I don't know. I feel like home for us has always been a place that um, home is like for fun and for safety and for like silliness and love. And and then like doing school at home was hard because it was like all of a sudden dad and mom were like, not just like fun people to like play with and hang with and read to you and teach you. It was like, we had to like be instructors and we had to like grade their assignments and like bring the hammer down when they weren't cooperating. And I think we're still unpacking some of that, that position shift and now trying to go back and maybe we can't fully go back, but 
Mm. How old are your kids? My son Eli is eight, which seems impossible. And my daughter Nora is six. That's that's wild. Um, I don't I don't have any kids or anything, but I've I, I have had the thought of during this whole time, you know, with the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and stuff, what what exactly this might be doing for children with um, the lack of socialization. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really hard for a while. Um, my kids are real physical, you know. We our family like we're real physical. We hug a lot, we kiss a lot, we you know touch a lot, like snuggles. And my kids are also very physical with their friends and loved ones, and so sort of helping them keep space was hard, you know, for a while. Um, and the first couple of months we didn't do anything. I mean, with anybody, but then we sort of eventually like decided to create a couple of small bubbles just so that basically for our kids sake, you know, I felt like we were able to handle it a little bit, but my kids didn't have the tools to like understand what was happening, you know, and why things were different. Um, but it's also like crazy because kids are so incredible. I mean, my kids don't complain about wearing masks to school. They just do it. My kids don't complain about, you know, social distancing. They just do it. My kids don't complain about eating on the patio. They just do it. Like, all these grownups in different states complaining that they don't want to wear a mask. It's like my kids do it for seven hours a day and they don't complain. Like I know you can use your like human size 30 year old brain and put a mask on for everyone's sake, you know? Sure. Yeah. Thankfully now my wife and I are both halfway through the vaccine, you know, which is awesome. And North Carolina has done a really good job in some ways of getting those out, you know, and they moved the educator deadline up. And so as soon as they moved it up, we got, my wife teaches preschool. Um, so we went and got our jabs and um, we're halfway got to get the second ones here soon. She gets her second one this week. Um, so that, that kind of changes the perspective a little bit because it's like, not that it changes like keeping people safe, but it um, just like gives you a little bit of hope. Like, oh, wow, science is incredible. Like there's kind of this common grace experience of like, oh, this medical miracle has occurred and the more people who get it, the more people who benefit. And then like each person benefiting benefits everybody. It's like very holistic in some ways. And my kids are sort of, you know, but we're going to go see my mom hopefully in early summer. And, you know, she's high risk, but she's been fully vaccinated now. And my kids are just asking like, are, is it cool if we hug her? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, I think it'll be okay. You know, but, but I also don't know. I mean, I think so. But I, f I feel like so much of this whole experience is people just deciding, like, that their own individual experiences are valid. Like, I think I think it's really easy to look at other people and be like, oh, they take it too seriously or they don't take it seriously enough. But it's so hard to know, like, what people are actually doing and what they're actually thinking and their actual experience. And I'm just trying to, like, give everybody as much grace as possible in this season because I feel like we're all sort of fumbling around in the dark right now. Yeah, that's that's a good perspective to have, I think. I mean, because like you said, you know, we're all we're all still trying. Like, it, it's been a year, but we're still oh. fumbling our ways around. And like, because there's so much about it that it, it does kind of, it does come down to personal, like the decisions that you make, you know, and and uh, it's balancing that with uh what your desires are or like what your lifestyle is like yeah you said your family is very affectionate and you like to be active and stuff and like the whole lockdown thing sounds completely contradictory to what you or you know conflicts with your lifestyle you know 
Yeah, and I think I think it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm so grateful for you know all the science and research that's come out to help us understand this thing. But you know, early in the lockdown, I remember just being like, "Is it safe to run outside? Like, is it safe for me to go outside and go for a run?" You know, I. I don't know. You know, some countries they were like, you weren't allowed to leave your, your block, you know? And so I was trying to figure out, um, yeah, like, is that safe? Cause that's important to me, you know? Okay. And we can't go to the gym. We like to go to the gym. We can't do that. Okay. Um, can't go to restaurants and bars. Okay. How are we going to support local businesses? And it's, yeah, it's an interesting, yeah, kind of like an interesting social problem. We're all sort of solving in different ways all the time. I think. What was uh once one way that you went about, trying to solve that problem like in the beginning so early on we decided to support um all of our favorite local businesses in rotation by doing like takeout i mean this is even like early enough in the pandemic that we were like wiping down every container we would get from anyone because we just nobody knew how the virus was transmitting and eventually we learned that eventually it was like oh it's aerosols most most of the transmissions through aerosol which means playing the clarinet is like the worst thing you could ever do but um yeah, so we would like sort of rotate through our favorite breweries and, and then some of our favorite breweries started delivering. So we would like try to deliver them and, you know, like little changes, like you start tipping when you pick up a takeout order, even though that's used to be why you'd pick up takeout, right? To not pay delivery or not pay tip. And then it's like, oh, well, now we need to do that because it's the only way these people can make an income. Um, so that was like a small way just because we, you know, we're sort of looking at looking down the barrel of this thing. We, we had no idea what's coming and... I love Greensboro and there's like parts of the the culture and society here that I'm really invested in. And I want those things to be here when it's over. Like I still want to be able to go to Little Brother Brewing and get my favorite sour beer. And I still want to be able to get my favorite burger from Hops. And I don't want to risk, like I don't want to not support those people right now so that those companies have to have to close. Like, you know, I wanted to sort of figure out, okay, like how can I try to keep some kind of, you know, commerce going, even though, of course, you know, I'm very fortunate. I have a college teaching job, but, you know, a lot of my disposable income sort of dried up from, from freelance work that just evaporated. And, and my wife is a freelance photographer in addition to being a teacher. And so that all dried up too for a while. So we were sort of like, you know, that, that wrestling of how do we, how do we choose wisdom? How do we choose charity? How do we choose to care for others and our family and community who might need support right now? Um, and it's like, it's so much more than money, but it also is money for like those small businesses. Like that's how they, you know, our, our favorite uh, Chinese takeout place. Um, we went in April to get takeout from there and there was nobody. And the guy was like, yeah, I think I've got like two weeks and then it's going to close. And then that word got around. And now I went in there last week and it's like, you know, you'd wait in line to get in the door to get your food. So it's, it's exciting. Like some people have made it, but you know, a lot of people haven't too. Um, both, both businesses, but also like human beings, you know, I mean, it's been sad to, yeah, just so much loss. Um, yeah, it's 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 really hard. You know, this is such a. I I didn't I didn't I guess you never know, but like I didn't know how hard it could be in terms of you know th- things things that like are not that hard overall, right? Become very hard to us when they're personal or important to our daily rhythms. And many many people have had it so much harder than than we have. Um, but like that doesn't that doesn't mean it's not hard for us, right? It's like important, I think, to always acknowledge that yes, we need to keep a perspective here, but also it's important to like name your feelings that this has been really painful for a lot of us in different ways. And it's easy for me to look at other people I know who have weathered it, in my opinion, better or more more effectively, and 
I'm sort of missing though that they, yeah, they, they are also going through it inside, you know, in their own way. And, and that's not for me to, I'm not, I'm not here to like rank people's suffering. You know, I think everybody is suffering and I just want to do the small things I can to alleviate that for others, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love that perspective of, um, uh, is my camera really blurry? I'm sorry. I just <laughs> no. You look good. Yeah, I, mean, oh, yeah? I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's really blurry. Maybe it is. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm like. I'm still trying to get used to using Zoom, and like I have. <laughs> I have a new external webcam, so it's a. It's a process. No. I, yeah. Oh my God, man. Like, <laughs> I had never heard of Zoom. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and now I have Zoom fatigue. I'm a fatigued of something I'd never heard of a year ago. It's right. crazy. Uh, well, I appreciate yeah, you haven't it. lived till you've see, teaching clarinet through Zoom is you haven't lived till you've tried to. Yeah, it's great. I recommend. No, I don't. It's terrible. <laughs> it's hard. It, it's it's a whole other ball game. Um, wow. Who was I? Who was I talking to? Uh, Sarah Whitney. Do you know Sarah Whitney? I don't know Sarah. She's a violinist in this quintet called Sybrite Five, and um, she runs a uh, Facebook group called the Productive Musician. And she was just on the podcast. I, I just published the episode yesterday. And one of the things that she was saying about the um, uh, <clears throat> lockdowns and stuff and the whole pandemic is like the rules of how the music, classical music industry and music industry in general now have gone out the window and things are no longer the same. You know, like this whole doing Zoom lessons and live stream performances and stuff like that. Um, but then in the same breath, she also said that that also means that there's also a lot of opportunity in that. Um, yeah, which... I totally, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think for, I mean, I'm, maybe for a lot of people, for me, what was hard initially was um, that I was initially trying to do the things I'd always done, but do them digitally, you know? Um, and that was really discouraging because one, I just wasn't doing it as well. Um, but also I was constantly experiencing the loss of those things as I was trying to recreate them in a sort of like cheap plastic way. Um, you know, like I, I had to learn, like, you know, my first, my first few months of teaching on zoom, my, my students are so gracious. I can't believe they put up with us as we're all trying to like frantically get the technology working and learn how to, how to, you know, hear them best and what settings to click and, oh my God, they're frozen. And what do I do? Do I log out? Do I not log out? Like this crazy evolution but when I sort of decided like, okay, this is, um, this is not a brick wall in my path. This is like a trellis in a garden. Like I'm going to, I'm going to hit this thing and I'm going to grow up it. You know what I mean? I'm going to let this thing, this huge obstacle guide my process rather than letting it stop my process. And so I, I you know, I learned that, yeah, maybe I can't, teach tone quality the way that I'm used to teaching it. I'm a very physical teacher. I like to be hands-on with my students. I can't do that. Um, but what can I do better? Okay, I have an insanely close-up view of their face muscles all the time. That's helpful. That's new, right? My student can zoom their camera in on their forearm while they're playing, and I can study what's happening there. I can um, record my students in the teaching. I can go back and watch myself teach and get better. I can record the lesson. Um, so I had to decide, like, this like this can't be the end. Like I, and, and for some people maybe it was, and that's fine. But for me, it was like an inflection point where I was trying to 
to see this horrible thing as an opportunity to grow. Not that you have to, right? Like it's totally fine also if you just suffered for a year. Like I think that's also fine. It's totally fine to be in the pit and knock it out. Like I don't think people have to do this. But for me, after being in the pit for a while and sort of realizing that for me, that was not putting me in the place I wanted to be in. I challenged myself, how can I, how can I get better? You know, and, and honestly, sometimes I still get worn out. Like sometimes I don't feel like making a video recording. Sometimes I don't feel like, like not playing for a full audience. Um, but I think at the same time, like there's other things to learn there. There, you know, one thing I love about digital performances is the access you have to the performer. Like, oh my God, I'm looking in Peter Ferry's living room while he's playing this incredible vibraphone solo. Um, Peter gave an amazing concert of Mark Mallett's piece, Parkland. Um, uh, back in the fall, I think it was fall. And it was like really powerful because I got to see in Peter's living room and the concerts were limited to 16 people. So we had like a talk afterwards and people I haven't seen in a long time all got together and, and we got to watch that experience from all over the country. You know, like I'm giving a master class in South Korea soon. Like that's cool. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have done that normally. And I've, I've had guest artists in, we had, a, we had a guest artist in from France last week for UNCG clarinets. So, so there is, there is good to be found here. But I, th I think it can coexist with like the morning. Like I've sort of had to learn to reject my tendency towards binary thinking, which is like, it's good or it's not, it works or it doesn't. But instead it's like, it works and it also doesn't work. And I have to hold those two thoughts in tension with each other. Cause that's how bridges stay up, right? Is they hold tension. Like that's, that's how like bubbles are formed. There's tension on the surface. And I think learning for me to live with that sort of non-dualistic, non-binary thinking it's, it's been really hard for me, but in, in the places I'm able to embrace it, I find that I'm, you know, I get through the day. And I think for teaching, like that's been a big one is like, man, I'm just mourning the loss of what should have been, but also I can be grateful for what could be, you know, in the same exact space. Like those things I think can be bedfellows. That's amazing. I, I love the, um, well, for one, the adaptability, I mean, because like you said, we're all handling this in different ways. Some people are suffering more than others. Some people are, are even leaning into it and like being active and productive and making, you know, projects and stuff. Um, but kind of eliminating that binary thinking, like you were saying, that's, that's definitely a challenge. Um, and, and getting in that middle ground, like that makes me think I've heard before when people talk about establishing policies and like, in, in you know, Congress or something like that, or politics, whatever you want to say. I'm not a very political person. I don't know much about the lingo, but <laughs> I've, sure. I've heard people say before that um, yeah. there's no such things as solutions. There's only trade-offs. And that kind of sounds like where you're coming from in a way where it's like the, the good, bad binary doesn't help me here because I can't do anything about the situation. We just have to sort of figure it out. So Right. And I, I'm, I certainly, I mean, certainly I believe there are things that are just evil in the world. Mm. Uh, and probably there are things that are only good, but yeah, I mean, f for me, it, it's been an exploration of my own, like, like, am, am I willing to grow in this moment that requires me to grow? Or am I going to try to be the tree that just like, I'm just going to ride out the storm and do things the same way. But, but I think like your guest said previously, like we're never going back to normal. Like norm, normal is over, I think. Maybe not, but what I think we're going to is a new future. And so the question is like, how, how do I want that to look? And what do I need to do now to try to build that? 
and how am and and am I willing to like lose parts of myself in pursuit of growth, right? I mean, like pruning a plant is a violent process. Like parts of the plant are lost so that the plant can grow into its full. I started gardening in quarantine, can you tell? And um, <laughs> yeah, we planted this vegetable garden last May and um, waited and waited and waited and, and trimmed and pruned. And then we finally started getting peppers and collard greens and kale and tomatoes and, and all this we got like one head of broccoli that didn't work. We're going to not do that one next year. Um, but, but like when you're in there and you're, you're like trying to get these plants to grow, like you have to cut them. Like, like the plant is wounded and something is lost, but then the plant becomes what it could be, you know, and reaches its potential. And I'm trying to tell myself that the parts of our careers, the parts of ourselves, that we've lost, which I think are real losses, that maybe, maybe through that loss, we will one day find something beautiful inside of us. Maybe, maybe, maybe through the loss, we'll find something powerful. Like maybe we find a strength we don't know we have. And like, maybe we don't, you know, but I, I can't live that way. <laughs> I, I just can't, I can't look at the world and say, it's not going to get better, you know? So I, I choose to believe that through this violent process of pruning that's occurring in my career and personal life and soul, that something is going to grow that, that will at least be hardy, that will at least have strength and, and maybe beauty, maybe not, you know, but at least that like through this process, like something, you know, some, something meaningful is going to emerge, I hope. Dude, great analogy, by the way. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, how do you how do you foster that? How do you foster that like adaptability, sort of um, uh, like like you said, like viewing viewing this as a, as a way where some things are lost, but then uh, coming out stronger on the other side in a way. Does that make sense? That does. Yeah, I. Um, the short answer is I don't know. I can just tell you what I, I've been trying to do, which is, you know, when I, I when I sat down last March, a year ago, um, and realized that my entire concert calendar was now empty for the first time um, in a long time, I realized that anything I was going to do was going to have the risk of failure with it. And not that I don't have the risk of failure when I perform, because I've often had performances that were less than I wanted them to be, or where I didn't, for whatever reason, I got nervous and didn't deliver, or I wasn't proud of, you know, what it happens, right? Um, but, but that's like failure I understand, you know, that's like, oh, I failed, but I feel like I still did a great job. This is like anything I do that's not teaching clarinet the way I've always taught it, or playing chamber music, or orchestral music, or solo music the way I've always done it. Anything I do outside of that is going to have a real risk of failure, and failure for musicians, at least for me, is really paralyzing. Like the idea that this might not work. Um, you know, but in March when things, when everything went south and, uh, you know, and I certainly had, I had my fair share of failures immediately. I mean, I really failed my first couple months of online teaching and I've gotten better and I think I'm doing okay now. But, you know, my, my students are incredible and resilient. And in spite of me and in spite of us college professors, like, they have done good work. Um, so, you know, credit to them and to, I can't imagine being in their generation, the things they've lived through, but 
But for me, it was like, okay, what am I going to do that's new? So I kind of sat down one day and said, okay, what are the things I haven't had time to do that I've always wanted to do? Um, personal things, like I want to plant a garden. I want to landscape. I want to do some house projects, right? But I'm not a handy person, so I have to learn how to hang a shelf. I have to learn how to hang a curtain rod. I have to learn how to, how to um, change an outlet, um, because I, I, I don't do those things. I don't know how to do those things. So I learned. I read about them. I watched videos. And I'm not going to lie. I shocked the crap out of myself a couple times trying to change an outlet. And that hurt. But I got it done. <laughs> and and yeah, I planted a garden. And a lot of the stuff. I, I planted an entire. I built new garden beds with a friend of mine. I filled one with all these beautiful plants. And they all died. Like I spent so much money on these plants. And they died. And, and I bought them from this shop that had like a, if your plants die guarantee, but I was so ashamed that I just couldn't make myself take them back. <laughs> I was like, I was so bummed. And so the flip side of that is professionally, there were also things I'd always wanted to do that I had never really had time to do. And so a big one for me over the last year has been writing, not composing, but like writing like words. I, I love to write. I almost went into journalism in college and I have, often written poetry and I loved like during my graduate school, like, I loved writing papers and I loved working on my doctoral research. Like I loved that and I'd always wanted to do it. And so I just had this idea, like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like pitch one article idea to this like super nerdy clarinet publication. I mean, it's like revered. I shouldn't, it's the clarinet journal, right? Which like is really interesting to me and like not interesting to anyone else, but I read it. So I like sent this proposal, didn't hear back for a while. And it's just like, oh man, like it didn't happen. That's okay. Like, you know, but the gut punch of like, man, I failed. I like struck out in this new direction and I failed. It didn't happen. You know, well, it turns out they were, they're just like me and they didn't respond to their email quickly. And we got in touch and they said, yeah, why don't you write one article? And we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll publish it. Maybe not. I said, oh my God. So I wrote this article. Um, and then I ended up writing another article that was published like in their online platform. And then like, I kind of got this momentum for writing. And then I had this idea and I'm currently working on like a co-authored etude book with composer Roger Zare. That's going to like, we have like a, like it's coming out like on a real publisher. And like, I wrote a book chapter recently and all this stuff started happening very fast. And it was only because I had the time to sit down and say like, you know, I've always loved writing and I've never had the guts or the time to, to try to make it happen. And, and so, so it happened. And at the same time, I had some other ideas. Oh, I'm going to enter these competitions, competitions. I'm, you know, I'm like, maybe I'm going to send some competition videos, enter some competitions, enter a bunch of competitions and like across the board lost, <laughs> just like, you know, didn't admit. And that, that was fine too. Um, and that was also helpful information. You know, I think all the time about this project I did, God, 2014, 15, 16, I don't remember. So, yeah, I don't remember when we did it, but this project um, called Far From Equilibrium, it was with with Roger Zare, that composer I mentioned, and with this physicist, Dr. Elizabeth Hicks, and with the choreographer, Megan Rhyme, and, all, and this graphic designer, Brandon Waybright, um, and all these, and this clarinet quartet, and the Broadway. We all got together and had this, this project where we explored... Um, like the nature of like different physics ideas artistically. So like the choreographer created this half hour dance and then Roger wrote this piece and we played it and there was like an interactive exhibit. And there was this design that reflected it. One of my favorite projects I've ever done. 
Uh, it was like this NSF kind of funded thing. It was really, really cool. But all that to say, in our preparation for that, we had this, these discussions about our creative process. And I'll never forget Dr. Hicks in our discussions. She said, I, I was sharing about music and about, you know, what motivates us. And I shared about, our, you know, success and failure. And, and I said, you know, I think a lot of artists are just scared of rejection and failure. And she did not understand that. And I, I was sort of confused by that. And we talked and she said, you know, for me as a scientist, like when I fail, I have done a service to my industry and I've guaranteed that something doesn't work and I should spend no more time on it. She said, failure is information and it helps everybody do better work next time. And it like blew my mind, the idea that that failure wasn't crippling or ultimate or final, but that failure was information. And I have struggled to believe that ever since then, but I've never stopped thinking about it. And the more I get into teaching and into higher ed and into education, the more I realize that that message is so freeing for students, you know, because success then is, is um, exciting, but it's fleeting. And if failure is information, well, then both of those things lead us to do more work, right? Success means, okay, let's do more of what we did that worked. Failure means let's try something else. This didn't work. And like, if you can take on that mindset where the process is the thing, where like the process itself is the outcome, well, then, then like failure and success become sort of like small potatoes compared to the joy of like doing the work, like the pursuit, you know, like the journey becomes the destination. And so during this process of like, okay, I tried to write and it, it succeeded, which was awesome. And I tried to compete and I failed and that was awesome. And I have since done more proposing of writing and more competing and I'll probably lose and win some of those again. And that's, that's also okay. Because if the point is to sort of excavate myself through these different, you know, making videos for a competition or proposing an article or a chapter or a book or something, if, if the point is the, the growth that occurs from those things, well, then, like, it's kind of like playing Settlers of Catan. Like, let's spend three hours setting up the pieces on the board and then get drunk and roll the dice. You know, like, who cares? Like, you know, I did the work. I did the work and it was great. And so win or lose, like, I, I did the part, you know, I, I did the, the initial setup. So all that to say, like, I think for me, I had to decide that, like, I was okay with failure. That I was okay, like, doing things that I don't feel as comfortable doing so that I could grow. And I would never have had the time to do these things if my entire calendar hadn't been wiped clean without my desire of that happening. But I'm grateful in retrospect that I had a chance to do all this writing, especially, and to learn like, you know, I do have something to say and I like, I like to write. And I, I do learn a lot when I make videos to compete and force myself to play at a high level. And even if I lose, which is what mostly happens, that it's still a valuable experience. And I, th I think I'm, I'm a better musician and a more resilient person because of that. That's wow. Uh, that's so cool. I, I love, I love the, um, that has to be one of the coolest explanations I've heard about uh, like using the, the lockdown as an opportunity to sort of do something more. And, and, and the way you explained it there with the, the process, you know, the, the, the process being so, so much more important than the outcome. Like how you said you, you started writing because you had the time and then you were like, well, maybe I can 
what if I send it to this guy? Or what if these people want, you know, like you said, a clarinet journal or something like that. And, and holy crap, that, uh, uh, the scientist saying failure is, know, is information. I think about it all. She's incredible. I, and I just, I wish that's, I think when I was young, I got so wrapped up in like winning and losing and, I, you know, I like I sort of I sort of missed the joy in the doing, you know, it's easy to like get focused on being done, you know, but I feel like that's so hard because sometimes those finish lines are really far away. Like I'm a runner and when I run a marathon, I can't be thinking about 26.2 miles on the first the first leg, you know, it's too far away. Mm-hmm. The secret is to enjoy mile three and then enjoy mile four and then enjoy mile five and then enjoy the rest stop and then enjoy mile six, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I, 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 I'm thinking about my own life and like, um, I I've usually been pretty good with things like not using my cell phone excessively. Right. In like the last month or so that has gone up a lot where like, I'll be using it when I don't even need to be, you know? Um, and I realized one thing that I realized is that for me, it's like always needing to take in some sort of information you know, and like, I'm not allowing myself to just experience whatever it is that I'm doing, like cooking, for example, I'll throw in a podcast while I'm cooking, which makes sense. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, maybe I could be a little bit more focused on what I'm doing, taking in the aromas or, uh, you know, kind of like to your point of, of running a marathon, you're like, okay, um, I'm in mile three. Now I'm at mile four. I'm not thinking about what's happening at the end. And I mean, it does. I don't know. It's not exactly a direct comparison, but um. No, I, I totally. My my friend Luke um has an amazing coffee roaster. He's a very small coffee roaster here in North Carolina, Pillars Roast, and he um. He, I was I was texting him one night, and he like stopped texting for a while. It's fine. He texted me back a few hours later, like, "Oh, sorry, I didn't text back. I was roasting coffee." I was like, "Oh, cool. Like, why couldn't you text me back? Where's the coffee?" I was curious because he sort of you know made this. Like, as if it was obvious that he couldn't text me because he was roasting coffee. And I was like, oh, like, are you, are you like holding it in a, like a pan? I don't know anything about making coffee. I like to drink coffee, especially his coffee, which is spectacular. Right, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, he said, no, no, no. I just, um, I use these machines. He said, but I have to really, while I'm making it, I have to notice everything. He said, I just have to, I have to smell everything and be listening and be watching. He's like, I don't want to risk disengaging from the process. I love that. Like, if you're going to make this beautiful thing, you have to stay in, like stay on it. And I think like, you know, I, I have kids and sometimes parenting feels like, oh my God, can I just get them out of diapers? Can I just get them to elementary school? Can I just get them to college? Can I just, you know, but if like you can do that and check them off, but like the fun part is like all the other stuff that you notice along the way, you know, like you know, I'll, I'll catch my kids doing like funny things. Like my son loves to read and I'll just catch him reading. Um, and one time I like went to the room, picked him up and gave him this big hug. And I was walking back to the living room, carrying him. And I realized he was like reading his book over my shoulder while I was carrying him. <laughs> like he had it, his arms around me and his, the book up and, you know, but, but it's like, it's like, he's just, I, I loved noticing that about him. And I love noticing too, that he was so invested in this thing he was doing. It's like, I, I love the idea that that it's not just finishing it out. And I think, I think the reason I resonate with that is because that's the way I viewed my life for a long time was like, I just got to check off these boxes. I got to get, go to college. I got to get a job. I got to, you know, get this degree and that degree or get this experience or that experience. But 
yeah, there's something to be said for like, no, I'm smelling the food while it's cooking and thinking about if that's what I want it to smell like exactly or if I need to put more cinnamon in or something. Mm. And cooking is something that I used to do a lot. And my wife is now like a brilliant cook. And so she does most of the cooking. But I've gotten to do a little bit more during the quarantine because I'm home more. And I don't travel right now for work. And like, I find cooking to be so therapeutic. I'm finding that it's good to do things where like, you're just not great, but you're like, okay. Mm. Like I'm a runner, but I took up trail running uh, in North Carolina in the last year. I've had a lot of time to do that. I'm just not a great trail runner. Like I like it. I really enjoy it. I love being out there, but I'm slow in the woods and I'm like cautious. I don't want to fall and like break my arm or something. So it takes me a long time. I'm, I'm mountain biking is the same way I started mountain biking in North Carolina. I'm not a great mountain biker. I'm a good road cyclist. But but again, it's like I I don't expect to be good at mountain biking. I just expect to like take it into the woods and see what I see and – and when I, when I get out into the nature, it's like, oh my gosh, like how lame is it that I spend all my time staring at my phone when like this world is out here, mm. you know? And, and it's so tempting, like when I'm riding my bike to like, oh, I want to put on some music. I want to put on podcast or, you know, and sometimes that's fine, but sometimes it's really good to just like really try to be present, you know, and do just that one thing. But it's hard. It takes a lot for me. It takes a lot of volition to not be doing other things. And I think, I think part of that is like the result of the way I've lived my life, which is I've spent all my life trying to hustle, 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 and just trying to be productive and figure out this and hack that and make sure I'm ready for this. And I've really thought through how this is going to unfold. And, and yeah, and I, I think about like colleagues, friends of mine who teach in universities all over the country and who just like do a really good job teaching and recruit really good students and like serve their communities and, they don't spend a lot of time on airplanes. They don't spend a lot of time driving around, but their lives are like really meaningful and like really fulfilling and their students are really invested in. And I, really, I admire that. Like that, that feels like a legacy worth having. Mm-hmm. Like just kind of a boring, lovely, wonderful, meaningful life where it's like, yeah. Like, I mean, like, you know, as we said, it's, it's so hard and it's time for artists and I'm like really just sympathetic to all the artists who have suffered so much. And I mean, I have friends in orchestras who are just reeling still who haven't gotten paychecks in months. And I, there's nothing you can do to undo that trauma. But I know that I've gotten to tuck my kids in every night and I haven't done that in a long time. You know, I've always been gone so much. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that we all have the ability to, bring the, like the parts, the, the things we've learned about ourselves in this, like with us into the, the future. Cause like maybe, maybe, maybe like the new normal can actually be better and healthier and more holistic and more others focused and more thoughtful and more. Yeah. Like maybe there's something in that for us long-term. I don't know. This is really fascinating uh, hearing you talk about this because it, 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 I think it connects a lot to what you were saying about the process, the process being more, um, you know, I, 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 more important, I guess, you know, but like, cause sitting there and spending, like you said, like tucking your kids in at night and, um, you know, uh, focusing on other things like like going trail running right that's 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 a demanding activity like you you actually can't be thinking about other stuff because if there's a rock in your way or there's a bear over there like (laughs) dude actually okay real quick right now in greensboro there is a like 
a a rabid they think coyote terrorizing the trails there's some coyote who's attacked like six people and they're all okay i think but apparently there's like this one coyote like who's terrorizing all the trails right now it's like it feels very much like a parks and rec episode yeah, yeah. um but it's also like literally impacted something i do a lot so i'm like i'm like following the coyote saga with great interest right now <laughs> oh shit it's, it's crazy but no but you're right like there is um no i i think yeah i think you're totally right that those things like you know if like i've noticed like i've gotten distracted cooking and i've like burned things that shouldn't have burned because i just forgot to stir them you know and i have gotten distracted running and you know yeah like i've tripped and fallen so many times you know and twisted my ankle and whatever like like yeah, it's good. To, you know, I've I've been reading more books recently, which is good. Um, but it's hard to read a book. You know, it's like it's hard to not want to do something that feels shinier, like reading the internet or something. Mm-hmm. Books are so fixed, you know, and they require you, they demand you to like get in there with them. But yeah, or or any you know, anyone can insert whatever they do. But my hobbies are sort of boring. <laughs> Well, no, I, I think that's great. I mean, I, I definitely did a decent amount of reading, I would say, in like the last year. But um, what did you read? What's the best book you read? The best book I read last or, or, year. Or most interesting that you've read since the pandemic? <clears throat> most interesting. Um, I'm actually still in the middle. Of, so one thing that I actually started doing in the pandemic was deciding that when I read something, I don't have to just read from cover to cover, like, and just get it done, like, actually soak it in and and so I'm still doing that with one of the books, which is The Arithmetic of Listening by Kyle Gann. Mm-hmm. And it's all about alternate tuning systems and uh, like historically and also present with composers like Ben Johnson and Ezra Sims and, uh, you know, like well temperament that Mozart was using or whatever. Um, and I'm also just genuinely very interested and curious about microtones and alternate tuning systems. So I'm kind of slowly going through it. But um I read a book last month, actually, called The Coddling on the American Mind. I've heard about this book. Yeah, uh, that was a really, really interesting read. Um, but it's funny, too, because how you said books are finite, and it's like more interesting and shiny to read something online. Um, I, I went to the website after reading the book, and they had a whole um, uh, like update, in a way, where they say, like, oh, because the evidence has changed from what we said in the book, here's what, here's what the evidence says now. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So they're actually like correcting themselves, even though the book is, like you said, it's, it's printed. That's that. But, um, but if you do pursue the information from the same people, they have corrected their, uh, what they've presented, you know? Um, I, I think it's so interesting. You know, I, I think sometimes like there's something to be said for slowness of change. Like certainly there are changes that, especially in our country, we need to make very quickly. But I think there's also something to be said for like other changes that that take a second edition before they really stick. You know, like it gives you time to really work it out so that you I, I know that I'm tempted all the time to feel like I figured it out when I read an article or two, you know, rather than sort of like you know really covering our bases right and really thinking through all the possible opposition and all the like opposing arguments what they mean mm. in a way that's not a caricature before we like think that we've got it dialed and i mean i i you know 
certainly I'm much more interested in a more rapid change than we're seeing in a lot of areas in this country. But I um, I, I guess I've noticed for me, like, the things in my life that I am, like, most proud of have taken a really long time to change and to evolve, you know? And the things that I think I change really quickly tend to not stick and I have to keep doing them. I think that's one of the challenging things, too, with starting a music career is um, from from what I can see, and even in my own experiences, like um, uh, as a Adam Schumacher, composer, pianist, has said, um, uh, it's a slow burn starting your career. And and yeah. that, that, that slow, like, there's no, there's often, for most people, there's no immediate change where it's like, oh, I'm suddenly a musician, a paid musician with a full-time income, <laughs> you know? Right, <laughs> I know. It's so interesting, you know, I... I, th I think I kept waiting for someone to tell me I, I was done, you know, like, like, was I done when I got my master's degree? You know, was I done when I got my undergrad? Was I done when I won my first competition? Was I done when I got my doctorate, when I got my first full-time teaching job or my first adjunct teaching job or whatever? Like, it feels like, like I kept thinking somebody was going to tell me like, oh, now you're a musician. And I, the thing I missed on the way is like, I was always a musician you know, I was, I was doing this presentation for some of our UNCG students. There's this really cool interdisciplinary art storm at UNCG where like visual artists and dancers and musicians and actors, they can all like live in this dorm that has like practice rooms and some studio space and like, uh, like, you know, rehearsal space for different kinds of like dance or theater. And they do this enrichment program where faculty come in and hang out with them and I was talking to them and I, I, was, I, said, I said to them, like, I know you're like 18 and you just moved here from rural North Carolina, but like, like you are already an artist. Like your career has begun right now. And I don't think you need anybody to tell you that you belong or that you have something to say. Like, I think you should just go say it. Mm. And I think that I think that like so much of art is like working it out as we go. Like, I mean, if you're anything like me, like my, my, my tastes have evolved in the last, let's say 10 years, my tastes have really changed and my preferences and like my, my values have changed and my thinking on lots of issues has changed and it are probably different again in, in 10 more years. And so if I wait till I'm done, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be a musician. You know, it's like, I used to be scared to call myself a musician because I was like, well, I'm also doing X, Y, Z, you know, or oh, I'm only a teacher or like, I'm, I'm not an orchestral principal player or something. Or like, oh, I'm not a writer. No, no, no. Like I'm, you know, no, I'm not, I, I mean, like, like physically, like, I'm, I'm not a runner. No, no, no. Like, and I still struggle to be like, oh yeah, I'm a runner. It's like, oh, I run some, but it's, it's like, it's so hard to want to embrace those identities. Cause we feel like somebody has to let us in, you know, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's the way, like, I think that, I think that we can be whoever we want to be in those moments and that nobody gets to keep us out, you know? And I know that a lot of these systems are set up to keep certain people out and that's, these systems are broken and that we need to fix them. Like certainly there are systemic inequalities in, in academia, higher ed, in music performance, and in, in those are the worlds I live in mostly, right? But I mean, in all kinds of areas, I know they exist. Like we've created a lot of artificial gates where we, we, no, we want to be the ones to tell people, no, now you're a real artist. No, now you're a real musician. No, now you're a real success. But like, that's so lame to me. Cause it's not, 
I, I, I don't think that I need to sign off on someone else's humanity or potential. Like, and I don't think that anyone else needs to sign off on mine. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a tenure track professor. So I had this weird process of like, I have to collect all of my materials and activities. Right. And then eventually I'll go up for tenure. And I understand why these systems exist, but it, it also feels a little icky to like write down everything you've ever done and be like, Oh, I hope it's enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, cause then there's this temptation. Well, I should just do things because they will help me get tenure or something. But that's not the way we do art successfully, right? The way we do art successfully is we care about something and we go do it, or we follow the rabbit trail, or we get really passionate about a couple of things and go there. Like I sort of believe careers are T-shapes. Like we do most things at a high level. And then there's like a few things where we go really deep, you know, where like you're a quote unquote, like, like you're experienced, maybe like you have some expertise in those areas. And like everybody has those things, right? Like the thing that you just know a lot about. And like, for me, some of those things are useful, like, playing the clarinet or bass clarinet or something. And some of them are not useful, like the history of indie and emo rock, you know, or like, you know, how different brands of running shoes impact your stride. Like those things are, you know, useless, but, but it's like, but if I start to do things only because I want to be signed off on by someone else, well, then I'm never going to strike out in the directions that are most meaningful to me, you know? And then, if, if I'm just waiting for some stamp of approval to be told that I'm a real professor, like I'm a real boy, then like, it's never going to come. You know, and what I realized eventually was like, I, it just, it's never like, I, I, I've never felt like I, you know, was there. Like I'm done. And that's because I'm not done. Like nobody's done. Nobody's ever done. Everyone you look at, you think is done is just feeling around in the dark at the same pace we are. And I think the people who you look at and really admire are the ones who've decided that it's okay that they are in process. And the people I look at as most complete are the ones who are most comfortable with the journey of being a person. And I, I, I just want to be done sometimes, you know, sometimes I want to feel like the race is over, but the, the good and bad thing about music is that it's an infinite game. Like it's like playing Skyrim. Like, Oh, those are mountains. I could go there. You know, like, Oh, this is a cave. I can go in there. I'm gonna, oh, this is water. I'm going to swim in it. Like you never run out of new rabbits to chase. At least I haven't. And that might mean that like, you know, that for phases of my career, it's like, yeah, lots of new music and all this great commissioning. And I love that stuff. And for parts of the career, it's like, I'm going to play the standards, you know, and that's great, you know, and, and those things may coexist because they might be different phases of the same self-discovery. But I, yeah, I, I really... I really thought someone was going to like, you know, show up on screen and be like, okay, now you're a real musician. Congratulations. Welcome. And now I realize that it's just like, I'm, I'm not on anybody's path, but my own. And that path has been pretty circuitous. I mean, I've, I've quit the clarinet at least once of my own volition and almost again, not of my own volition. And, and that was fine too. You know, like that, that would be okay too. I think I don't, I don't feel like, yeah, I mean, I have like next to my desk, I have my clarinet and my electric guitar and I play them about the same, you know, and <laughs> I'm only a professional at one of them. <laughs> but It's really interesting hearing you say this because this, this totally resonates with my own personal path. Like in undergrad, um, I, I couldn't call myself a composer. Like I, I wrote music, but I, I didn't feel like I knew that I was still learning and I didn't have a craft like honed on anything, you know. And 
there was a lot of development and and like if I heard one of my fellow students say like oh I'm a composer and I'm like what do you mean you're a composer you're still learning like you're still- <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah but it's it's sort of a weird thing there because like like you're saying at what point then if that's if that's the line of thinking that you're you're adopting then at what point do you become that thing you know because yeah <clears throat> identifying when you were saying uh how you identify oh yeah um i know we're we're, up, we're almost up at an hour see this is total amateur hour i should have i should have done this in the beginning of the podcast but <laughs> no we're great no, uh, we're great. almost up at an hour uh, how long are you uh do you want to go until I've got probably at least 20 minutes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I'll, I'm going to set a timer on my phone just to make sure. Cause I feel like we can just keep riffing and like, I know we're just going to go. <laughs> yeah. Carefully. You have to like shut me up. I, yeah. It's like, wow. A real human being talk to this great. <laughs> That's cool. I appreciate it too, man. I'm enjoying this conversation a lot. Um, yeah. So I'll set it, I'll set it at 18 minutes. How about that? Give a little deal. Yeah. Little, little, That's little good. room. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But like how we identify ourselves. I mean, one thing that I feel like, you know, speaking from my own experience, and I feel like this is similar for most people, especially musicians, is a lot of it is really self-imposed, um, particularly because our field is so competitive, even when you're not explicitly competing, where it's like, right, if you want a gig at, I don't know, some venue like Carnegie Hall, we'll say, right, the, the big one, um, you can be invited there in some capacities, I guess, or like have some sort of, I mean, I, I honestly don't know how it works, but I have no doubt you can also rent the hall, which probably costs a lot of money, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, it's it's such a weird dichotomy to have. Ex- like, accepting who, like, that you are this thing that you're like, hey, I'm a composer. But then again, as a composer to be, um, to, to be a, to earn a living, I have to be paid to write music. And if I'm not right. getting paid to write music, then it's like, ah, <laughs> there's something missing, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a hard nut to crack. You know, I think about that a lot because, yeah, I, I think my question is always like, you know, what was I a clarinetist when I wasn't a clarinetist full time? You know, like, would I be a clarinetist if next year I decided to sell insurance or be a realtor? and still play for fun. Like, I don't know. I think it's also hard for artist types to do things as a hobby after having done them professionally. Cause I think we always know what we're capable of and it's hard to go there. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. My, my wife is a, was a brilliant clarinetist and now she's a photographer, doesn't play a ton. And she did some gigs last year, but she said it was always hard for her because like, she knows what she can play like. And just because she sounds good playing in the the band she got hired to play with or whatever, like she also knows what's possible. And that's, that can be hard. Um, But I I think for me, I, the thing I I came down on, and this is not for everybody, but I eventually had to just decide, like, I don't need to succeed at others' expense. Like I can also be happy when someone else succeeds, you know, I mean, for my job at UNC Greensboro, Many of my colleagues who teach at other schools applied for this job and I applied for their jobs and we did or didn't have interviews at all the same schools. And and you sort of eventually decide like, you know, like this person's big success that's way shinier than like my success or mine's more than theirs. It's like, you know, we we are not competitors in the sense that we need the other person not to win. I mean, of course, we are competing in the sense that like one person wins an audition and 100 people take it. You know, I get that. 
And I understand there are people who will go their whole life and work and not, not win the job they want. And I, I get that too. But I'm also a believer that like, we can build a big enough table for different artists to sit together. Like, I think there is a way that we can like coexist and that we, that we can be competitive in the sense that we push one another to do our best work, but that we hopefully don't, that we don't want the other people. Like, it's hard. Cause like, I, you know, I want my friends to succeed when they apply for the same job as me, but I also want to succeed, you know? And it, for me, it's just come down to like trusting that something, yeah, like it, it will become clear if this is the right thing for me or not, you know, and it'll become clear if it's the right thing for them or not. And that it's, it's okay if they succeed at my expense. Like I, I, I try really hard to avoid being a musician as my deepest identity. And I don't succeed in that most of the time. Um, but I also remember so many times that like, if Andy, the musician failed, then Andy, the person was shit. Mm. And Dude, I lost this competition a long time. I didn't. I got second in this competition, but to me, it was like all or nothing. It was the only way I saw the world. And I remember just crying in this Chili's <laughs> with my wife because I was so upset because I was so close. It was a big deal. And I got second, and I was just devastated. And I look back at that moment and laugh because it's like I had created this impossible standard for myself where if you fail, you are a failure, and you do not have anything to offer. Instead of saying wow, that person was great. I wonder what I can learn from them for my own process, you know? Or like, wow, I want to go hear that person play because they must be doing something really special. I really felt like, no, it's me. And if it's not me, it's because I am defective. And I think now, you know, like I listened to, we just had our audition season at UNCG. We had all these great people audition. And it's incredible to me how I can hear 14, 15, 20, 30 great players and they all stick out to me for different reasons. And like one of them might be the right fit for a teaching assistantship and one of them might not be, but they can both be spectacular and they can both have wildly different successful careers ahead of them, whether musical or extra musical. And the, the more I like evaluate in those situations, which I sort of hate the process of evaluation anyway, but I really think, yeah, I, I really wish I had decided sooner that that like it, it was all right not to succeed and that it was also all right for others to succeed. Like one of my favorite movies is there will be blood. Do you know this movie? Great movie. And I know it's a masterpiece. One of my very favorites, maybe my favorite ever. And I just always think about Daniel Plainview, this singularly focused driven man. And I just, that scene where he says like, I have a competition in me. I do not like for other people to succeed. And like, I relate to that. Like I was that guy for a long time. And it's, it's really exhausting because instead of spending my energy thinking like, what else can I be doing? I'm spending all my energy thinking, I wish I could do what that person did, you know, but like, like, like sunsets and roses are both beautiful and they're very different, you know, like <laughs> that's okay. Like, it's okay that they're different. And one is really useful for one thing and one is really useful for a different thing. And they have a lot of overlap, but it's like, no, if that rose succeeded, I want to be that, you know? But it's like, I'm not, and, I, and that's okay, you know? Like, I, 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 there's great freedom in deciding that, like, who you are is enough and that you can't be everything and you can't do everything. And it's hard to trust yourself. It's hard to, to trust that, like, your structural integrity as a person is strong enough that it's okay if someone else is just better. 
And for me, it's like, I've tried so hard to just bring those people into my circle. I just want to learn from those people. Like I try to hang with people who inspire me to be better because they're better. And not that I have to be better just like them, but that I, I watch them teach, I watch them play, I hear them speak, I read their writing and realize like I can also get better. And I want to, like, I think when, when I stop improving, like it's probably time to hang it up, you know, mm. and do something else. And that's okay too. Like, and I think the same is true of like, you know, I, I, okay, I shouldn't, okay, disclaimer. I don't think that your job always has to be joyful. I don't think it always has to be perfect. I don't think it's always going to be filled with meaning. Like that's why they call it a job and not drinking beer with your friends. But, but if, if I get to the point where like the job has lost its luster for me for a long time, I'm going to like listen to that part of myself and decide like maybe, no, maybe, maybe I need to like kaleidoscope, like twist the focus a little bit. And sometimes maybe I need to pick up a new kaleidoscope, you know, something new. And it's really scary to do that because again, for most of us as artists, like we're intertwined our, our, our sense of identity and our, our craft. But for me, it's, the more I disentangle those things, the better it is. Cause you, you know, you can sort of, I used to practice so late every night and now I just go to bed and it's like, and it's not, it's not like there aren't days like that. Of course there's days, there's seasons, right? Like doctors can go to be, they can be a resident one time. They can go a year and work ridiculous hours or three years, but you can't do it forever. You know, like I don't, I don't believe to, to paraphrase Eugene Peterson. Like I don't believe we become better musicians by becoming less human. You know, I don't think we become more anything by becoming less human. And I just wish somebody told me sooner, like, bro, take a nap, like, mm. you know, go outside, take a deep breath, put on your favorite record. Like, doesn't have, yeah, it's not only, I, I saw this thing come past me on Instagram the other day, which like kind of has stuck with me. It said, you are not only on earth to lose weight and get a promotion. <laughs> And I thought that was so funny because, like, that is kind of what it all boils down to. Isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, we all want to look better. We want to make a little bit more money. <laughs> I know, dude. I was, you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine and talking about houses, and I'm working on my house a lot during quarantine. Um, and I said to him, I said, you know, man, if I feel like if my house was just like 20% bigger, and he's like, yeah. Then he's like, and if you made 20% more money, right? And if your friends were like 20% cooler <laughs> and if like your kids are 20% smarter, you know, and on and on and on, it's, you know, contentedness is not really a American value, but I wonder how much of that is my social media intake, you know, that there's always somebody faster and better looking and playing harder music and whatever. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's like learning to be okay with what we have. Well, it's so crazy hearing you say all this because this, this, um, it, what keeps resonating in my mind is what you said earlier about like appreciating the process, you know, yeah. like, um, like the idea, like, oh, if my house is twenty percent bigger, but then, like, it, it could be twenty percent bigger, but if it, if you if you had the perspective of like, uh, if you came from the mindset of like, you know, I kind of want to build a bedroom, I wonder what that would be like, you know, like, yeah. No, absolutely. Or like, what if, uh, what if I just made a, a sunroom out back? Because that'd be kind of nice. Put the plants in there, or like, yeah, you know? maybe they would finally grow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think you're. I mean, that's yeah. Then there's the concept of like gnawing your bone. You know, like finding everything you have, everything that's in what you have. Because I, I think sometimes it feels easy to. For me, it feels easy to want something else, to have something else. But I think there's wisdom in deciding that I'm going to find 
every corner of what I have first. And if I can do that, like, you know, the problem with, with like getting up and moving away because your job is hard or the problem with like trying to relocate to make yourself happy or find it. It's like you always take yourself with you, you know? And so if, if I don't learn to be content in this house, in this job, with this family, with these friends, with this amount of money, when I have more, I would, I'll just be discontented with more house, more family, more friends, more money, you know, like, and I, you know, I drive a minivan, bro. I, you know, I used to drive a fast car years ago. I sold it for an SUV. That car got wrecked. Now I drive a minivan. Like that happened. You know, I used to drive a fun little car and it's easy to be like, oh God, I just wish I had, but you know, I'm, I just, well, I can, I can fit my mountain bike straight into the minivan without disassembling it. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I can, I can take joy in that and learn to really appreciate that. Cause like, you know, I had to put a rack on the old car. So I think that's a silly example, but well, you know, the idea sense, that though. I hope so. And I, I, I just, I'm, I'm in awe all the time of, yeah, just how much, how much more there is in everything we see, you know, like we, it's really easy to sort of reduce the things we have to their like basest function, you know, like this achieves this in my life. But then when you look deeper, it does so much more, you know, it's like easy to look at a flower and say, Oh, it's so pretty but then you smell it and then you clip it and bring it inside. And then you, you know, you see a, a bird or you see a, a bee like benefiting from it. And there's all this hidden meaning inside of it. And I just thought it was pretty and it is pretty, but it's also so much more. Mm. That's, that's amazing, man. I love all that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Awesome. Sometimes I talk and I'm like, I'm working this out in front of me. I hope it's making sense. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that a lot, actually, because I'm similar. Like, I, I just sort of start, like, I'll have a, a thought and then I'll just start going with it, trying to connect it out loud. Yeah. Often it doesn't. And I sound like a jackass. <laughs> <but> like... <laughs> Dude, so so I'm, I'm an external processor. I love to, I actually decided that I'm, I'm an extroverted introvert. I used to think I was an extrovert, but, um, but my wife, like, works things out in her head before she like talks about them. And I like work things out out loud. And I've learned that this is a problem because when I say something, she assumes I've done all the hard work she's done of like putting it together. So I'll be like in passing, like, Hey, I think maybe we should move to Germany. And she's like, I'm sorry. What? And I'm like, Oh, you're right. Bad idea. She's like, wait, you're, you're backing out of your plan already. I was like, plan. I don't have a plan. <laughs> but in her mind, it's like, if she said we should move to Germany, she'd already have thought through like, okay, we're going to live in this city. We're going to do this and you're going to work here and I'm going to work here and the kids are going to do this. And so I sometimes, yeah, I'm, I'm working on trying to preface like what I'm about to say to you just came to me mm. like junk mail. So I don't know if it's good or not. I haven't opened it. <laughs> like, let's find out what's in there together. I, I, I like she's... that kind of stuff, though. I, li I like just sort of off the cuff, like, what are your thoughts on this thing right now without ever hearing of it before? You yeah, I, I think it can be powerful and. Yeah, I think, you know, the sort of, I think that in situations that are like of neutral impact, going with your gut can be really helpful, you know, just, because I, I don't know, I, I sort of realized a long time ago that most decisions are reversible, almost all, not all, but I used to really worry about making the wrong decision, but now I just try to make the best decision. I don't have to make the right decision. I, I play, um, oh my gosh, I'm so, so my hobby is also in addition to reading and being in the woods alone, uh, I like to play Scrabble on my phone against random people. 
And playing Scrabble is so frustrating because sometimes you're just going to lose. And it's, it's like poker. Like the only thing you can do is make the best decision available to you. Fold, play, bet, whatever, right? Like I have these seven letters and they go wherever they go for the most points and that's it. Like it's the best decision. It doesn't have to be the right decision. It's, it's the only one available to me. And so it's like, I used to really worry, like I'm going to make the wrong decision. What if I... You know, like going to grad school. What if I go to the wrong grad school? You know, as if there's a right grad school, which there's not, of course. Now I realize, but but then you're like, okay, well, like worst case scenario, I go to the wrong grad school, I fail out, I just go somewhere else, right? Just work it out, or I don't go to grad school and I get a job doing something else. Like m most decisions can be brought back. Like even you know, I took a job in a city and I hate the job. Well, I, worst case scenario, I can I can just move back, try again. Like, and I, th I think this all like. Yeah, for me, it all comes back to that idea that when you remove that fear of like objective failure from your from your life, it's like a superpower. Like, and in fact, you should embrace it. You know, like if failure is just information, like that's awesome. You know, I, I, there's these, this uh, book, Peak Performance, by Brad Stolberg, Steve Magnus, really good book, and I think it's in that book that they talk about the twenty four hour rule. Like, if you have something really awesome happen. Like you win something big, like you get a grant, like you have 24 hours to celebrate. So you can get a steak dinner, you know, and you get a like night of partying and a sleep in morning, and then you get back to work. And if you lose, so, um, you know, like I take an audition, I get to the finals, but I don't win. You get 24 hours to mope, 24 hours of like eating brownie batter and like in my PJs crying, watching Downton Abbey. And then it's like, all right, back to work. And I think that like the more I think about, I, I love that idea so much of like, I made the wrong decision. All right, I get 24 hours, I'm just gonna, and then back to work. But how can I, what's the next decision to make, you know? Or like, yeah, real success. Like, oh, I nailed it. Like I totally made, you know, I won the Scrabble game of life. You know, that 24 hours and then like back to work. Cause I feel like the work is like what's fun for me really, you know, is the, the exploration. Yeah, so I think for me, yeah, it all comes down to like, you just have to make the, I just try to make the best decision I can. And like, I, I expect to fail about half the time. That, that seems, yeah, that's pretty good odds, actually. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I, I mentor a lot of graduate students. We have um, some really amazing doctoral clarinet students at UNCG. And, you know, like, they apply to a lot of stuff and they get rejected a lot. Not because they're not amazing, because they are. And, I just, I try to tell them, like, I always, they, I always tell them, like, no, I've gotten rejected from more stuff than you've even applied to in your life. And they're like, haha, that's so nice that you say that. But I mean it. Like, most of my academic careers, like, I applied for a grant, I didn't get it. I have to think of something else, you know? I applied to a competition, I didn't get it. I applied to a job, I didn't get it. And when you sort of realize that, like, that's just, like, part of the growth process, you take 24 hours and you work through it and then you try again. Uh, that's that's great i love i love setting that specific time limit too where it's like all right allow yourself to feel this for a day yeah because you deserve it of course yeah but then going back to what you said like at the very beginning of the conversation about um you know you have to move on at some point right yeah and if i don't if i don't set that limit i tend to like really ride the waves of my like ups and downs oh, so far insane. like i'll just ride a success for like six weeks and do nothing or i'll just like be in the pit for a month or two and it's like 
you know, if my goal is to do the work as long as I can for years, decades, then these are, it's, but then it's like playing, I mean, I love baseball. Then it's like baseball. It's like, it's 162 games this season. You're going to win. You're going to lose. So when you win, hey, that was great. I won. That's really awesome. I feel good. You lose. It's like, oh, I'll play again tomorrow. It's okay. And I think that's one way that, yeah, when I win the World Series, yeah, let's go crazy, of course. But that happens one time every few seasons, maybe. Yeah. Most of the time, it's like you work really hard, you advance in the season, you get out in the playoffs, you retool the team, you mid a little further, you retool the team. You win the World Series, everybody gets traded, and you start from scratch for a decade. Like, happens to my beloved Braves. Uh, yeah, that's that's the way of the, uh, the, the, the professional sports world. It really is, yeah. Well, I, I, uh, the timer, the timer has gone off. Okay. Okay. I will, I will respect the timer. <laughs> I'm, I'm good to keep going, but I don't want to hold you up. No, um, it's good. It's good. We should, we should wrap this. This conversation has been incredibly inspiring, man. I've enjoyed every second of it. And, uh, th- I'm so excited that you wanted to join me. Um, is there anything that you want to tag at the end here or like any plugs you got or just some words to leave the people with or. Yeah, I do. I'd, I'd love to plug. Um, I play in a sextet called Latitude 49. And Latitude 49 has just, well, it releases March 19th. We have an album called The Bagatelles Project. It's on our Bandcamp page, latitude49.bandcamp.com. And this is a really cool project because we got together. So we're, we're separate. Like we live all over. I live in North Carolina. We've got Tim's in Vancouver. Janie and Chris are in Texas. Andy's in Michigan. We're all over the place. Um, but we had this uh, project that came from some of our board members suggested this, where we each asked some composers to write short, like one to two minute long pieces for us, like solo pieces. And we recorded those individually. And we did a big concert premiere on March 5th. We have one more on March 19th. And the album, we recorded them, comes out March 19th. And the coolest part of this project is that all the proceeds from the performances and from the recordings are going to this incredible organization we've been partnering with, the Coalition for African Americans in the Performing Arts, CAPA, C-A-A-P-A. Uh, and they're, they're amazing. They're doing so much good work. And so we've really enjoyed this process. So the entire project is a fundraiser for them. We're sort of working to give them um, financial and awareness support through this project. So every bit of money from um, these concerts and every bit of money from the album forever in perpetuity is going straight to, to Kappa so they can continue to do this amazing work. Um, some of the, yeah, you should check them out. It's number four Kappa.org. So number four C-A-A-P-A.org. And it's been our real, a real pleasure to get to know them and to put this together. And I'm just so thankful to the composers, 36 of them total, who each wrote short pieces. And I'm thankful to Bill Malone, who did our engineering and mastering. And this is huge community project everyone giving, donating themselves and their time and their skill to this, this unified process. And so it was really beautiful to see it happen all together. So I'd love people to check out the album, The Bagatelles Project. It's available on Bandcamp and all the money from that, 100% of the proceeds from that forever will go to this organization. And there's lots of cool stuff, including five new clarinet pieces from Sharnisha Joyner, Anthony Chung, Viet Quang, Chelsea Lowe and Stephen Banks. So five amazing composers and humans who I love. So please check out their music and support them as well. That's fantastic. Well, I'll definitely link to that uh, in the yeah, show. Yeah, thank you so there. much. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, I, I, I just want to say real quick too, uh, 
I feel like we owe a shout out to Erin Cameron because she is our mutual friend who connected us. Oh my gosh, the incredible Erin Cameron. I, I, always, I always tell the story, I have to tell that just because you mentioned her. And so Erin gave a masterclass for our students last fall and like changed their lives. Erin is one of the finest clarinet players in the country right now, 100%, and one of the most brilliant teachers I've ever seen. Um, she's incredible. But I, I just have to always tell, I met Erin at Northwestern when I was doing my master's and she was an undergrad. And I think she was a freshman when I was finishing my master's or early in my master's. And I remember that she performed in our studio class at the end of the year. She played this complete sonata, start to finish, like three movements with piano. And it was like 30 seconds in that one of my colleagues, a grad student, looks at me and is like, is that the best performance you've ever heard? And we're only 30 seconds in. <laughs> I was like, I think it is. Like as a freshman, the artistry that Aaron had was astonishing and it's only grown. And I, to this day, I hear her play, I see her teach, I talk with her and she's just one of the very best musicians I've ever encountered. She's actually, well, you know, the clarinet conference is online now, so we'll see what happens, but she's supposed to be writing a piece for my bass clarinet quartet to premiere at the clarinet fest this summer. We'll have to figure out what's going to happen now that it's going to be on the internet. But, um, yeah, she. Everyone should know Erin, and everyone should follow her music, and everyone should do yourself a favor and try to get in a concert hall where she's playing and just like experience that that power. I mean, I God, I just revere her. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm so glad she connected us. Yeah, she's amazing. I, I know. I was so excited. Um, um, yeah, I, I met her at Bowling Green State University, and and to your point, like seeing her perform, I was like, holy crap. I know. There's nothing like it, man. <laughs> we we do our doctoral student Lucas does this, um, like guess the performer thing before every studio class online right now. And when Aaron was going to be the guest, he like was playing recordings of her, and people are guessing like these really famous like international superstar clarinet players. Like, oh, is it Sabina Meyer? Like, oh, I wonder if. <laughs> and he's like, actually, this is Aaron Cameron, our guest today, professor <laughs> yeah. of clarinet at Arkansas State. I mean, she's yeah. She, she has an incredible future and I can't wait to like watch her career develop and just like keep learning from her. I, yeah, I'm in awe of her. Oh, me too. That that's uh, not surprised to hear your, uh, your experience with her is, is similar to mine, but uh, yeah, she's yeah, a real deal. She'll be back on the podcast uh, very soon. Actually, we're going to, we're going to have another, another, another go at it, but um, that's awesome. Yeah. But Andy, this was so cool, man. I I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and, Thank, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, such a pleasure. Yeah. And yeah, thanks for the invitation. And I just uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's so great to see these amazing conversations codified and, and brought to light. Yeah, totally, man. I, I'm, I'm going to keep on it. It's, uh, it's yeah. fun. Yeah, gonna... please do.